Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. I'm David Alt, and you're listening to the Wicked Library. Warning: The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, These nightmares, and your participation in them, are under your control. Hello listeners, and welcome to Season 11 of The Wicked Library. This is Episode 1103. I'm Addison Peacock, and I'd like to wish you all a very happy Halloween. I hope you're staying safe and spooky and helping yourself to tasty treats and dark delights alike, and maybe watching scary movies, and of course, settling in with a fantastic podcast. As I said, I'm Addison Peacock. You might know me from my previous work on the No Sleep podcast. You might know me from the SCP archives from this very show. You might know me from A Horror Borealis or The Cryptid Keeper or a bunch of scary shows all over this big internet. I'm the first guest host, and there will be other guest hosts coming as the season progresses, which is pretty exciting if you ask me. I'm a big horror fan. This shouldn't be a surprise, but I am. I think there's something very special about media and art that gives you a chance to feel that chill run down your spine to get your heart rate up to get that flush in your cheeks that feeling of excitement it's like some people ride roller coasters and some people skydive and some people love horror and i think it's just a special genre lets us take a look at the deepest darkest parts of ourselves and our world and explore our fears in a place where we know at the end of the day we're safe and we can try on that fear knowing that we'll be able to take it off and be comfortable again when it's all done. I love Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. I dress up every year. I have since I was a little kid. I used to go trick-or-treating, of course, and now I still dress up. I watch scary movies at home. I mix scary movies together with nostalgic childhood, spooky content like old Disney Halloween specials and Hocus Pocus and all that sort of thing. I like to carve pumpkins still. I do definitely buy a big bag of mixed Halloween candy. I put some out for the kids and I eat the rest myself. And that's just fine. (laughs) I love going to haunts and just getting outside and feeling the crisp fall air or as crisp as it gets for me. I'm in Los Angeles and just taking it all in. I'm also a big fan of Irish folklore. I have Irish heritage and the origins of All Hallows Eve being from that part of the world also gives it a special place in my heart. So, you know. Make sure you light your fires and keep an eye out for ghouls and ghosts and creatures as the veil thins between the worlds. This episode 
features a story by returning Wicked Library alum author Ricardo Victoria. He is a Latino author from Mexico, so this episode serves not only as our Halloween episode, but also as a celebration of Dia de los Muertos. Thank you so much for listening, and I want to give a special thank you to the listeners who are supporting the show on Patreon. They truly make the show possible and allow us to make sure those who contribute to the show don't have to work for free. Paying your artists is extremely important, and creative work deserves to be compensated fairly, and I really am very grateful for shows and projects that are able to do that, so thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work goes into making the Wicked Library, and they really rely on the support to help pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing you're part of making the show possible, you can also get rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, there's even more stuff. You can support us at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary. I know that I myself have lent my voice to more than one story on the Patreon, so if you can't get enough of these dulcet tones, you can find some more of that there. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our story. We're traveling beyond the reaches of our known galaxy into the deep, dark, cold mysteries of space with The Sound of Madness by Ricardo Victoria, featuring voice acting by Andre Luke Martinez, and a custom score composed by Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. More info about all of the artists involved in this episode, and me too, can be found on the Wicked Library website. The Sound of Madness by Ricardo Victoria The room where they just put me is cold, bereft of personality, like most of the interrogation rooms, I guess. In comparison, my cell is pretty good, all things considered. They want to interrogate me again. They just waited until my eardrums healed enough so I could hear the questions this time. I'm not sure what else they hope to get out from me. But based on the news I saw in the screen at my cell, I can only assume they want more insight on what to expect when they send a new mission to that damned place. There are only two metal chairs and a metal table in the center of the room. The chair where I'm seated is uncomfortable, but no more so than the straitjacket they have forced me into, claiming to do it for my security, which is a lie, of course. They are afraid of what I could do to the agent they will send, especially to their ears. I mean, mine have not recovered 100% from what I did to them. That's why I still have troubles hearing. But, other than that, I have been a model inmate in the special compound where they tucked me away from prying eyes. I know I'm on Titan because I can see Saturn from the tiny skylight of my cell. 
the sight of the rings is truly breathtaking and relaxing. At least for me. It means that I'm far away from that damned place, and from where I could cause damage, even if it is involuntarily. The camera on the wall has a blinking red light now, meaning that this whole thing is about to start. The door opens as the agent that will handle this chat enters. The usual look, business suit, shades, no standout details. One would have thought they are not born, but rather created in a cloning factory. I assume that being inconspicuous is the aim of the carefully tailored look. The agent sits down and puts on the metal table one of those small recording trinkets usually favored by self-absorbed writers, pretentious influencers, and aspiring journalists. Debriefing 00498. Agent Donovan following the standard procedure to interview the sole survivor of the Daedalus mission to Aquila 37LC, Danny Figueroa. Dr. Figueroa, I reply. Getting my degree was no ride in the park, and despite what the agent might think of me in my current circumstances, this petty action of mine allows me to keep some semblance of normality. I eye the trinket. Are you recording this? Really? I would advise you against doing that. Yes. Standard procedure. Why? Standard procedure is what has us in this room in the first place, I say with scorn. And it will doom the new Icarus mission. That's what I assume you are here for. Information on what to expect out there? The agent offers me a stiff smile. You are not a threat to me, or to yourself, or to others. The straitjacket is making sure of that, Dr. Figueroa. So, I suggest we start so you can return to your cell from the restraints. <laughs> I chuckle. As you wish, it's your funeral. Before we start, any advice for the Icarus mission? Yes, don't go, I say. No, I'm not being facetious. I'm not jealous of the possibility of them succeeding where my own mission failed, mostly because I know for sure they will fail as well, or worse. I'm being totally honest here. The mission will proceed regardless of this interview. So what's the point then? I shake my head. It will end the same as the mission I was on. Agent Donovan doesn't look too amused at my reply. I do wonder what amuses an agent. Probably a nice spreadsheet full of data. We want to see if your story can provide insight for that not to happen again. I let out a long sigh. I admit, they are taking what happened seriously. Not seriously enough to cancel the whole thing, but at least to try to avoid our same mistakes. Given my current circumstances, it costs me nothing to be as honest as possible. There is a lingering hope that answers will be found, but but there is the risk of that... Of what has kept me awake at night with reflections and nightmares coming out? The risk is high, but the hope of them canceling the mission after this might be worth it. Then you'd better pray that this chat only provides that. I don't understand. Of course you don't. I offer the agent a friendly smile. No reaction, which is not surprising. Let me ask you something first. Are you familiar with the concept of memes? The images used to convey ideas during the 21st century? No, not those ones. I mean memes. 
As in when you have an idea, a concept so strong and coherent that it becomes capable of propagation from person to person. Like a virus, the agent pushes forward. Are you claiming that a virus was the cause of the demise of the mission? It's more complicated than that. I wish I could pinch the bridge of my nose to stop the incipient migraine this interview is causing. Then again, the straitjacket doesn't give me many options. I better start at the beginning. I won't bother you with how the discovery of artificial coherent signals coming from an exoplanet orbiting a star in the Aquila constellation excited the scientific community. I mean, between that and the start of successful, functional, faster-than-light propulsion and regular travel around the solar system, there were talks about launching a mission to find the source of said signals. A task force was set up by several governments to plan an expedition. Of course, we didn't have any illusions of finding a living civilization there once we arrived. Why? When you are talking interstellar distances, you have to account for the passage of time. That means that the signals must have departed their original source years, centuries, maybe even millennia ago. They are but a snapshot of the past by the time they arrive here. Thus, we worked under two of three possible scenarios. Once we confirmed they were artificial signs created by someone, a long-dead civilization, the most likely scenario, a civilization entering the information era, or an advanced civilization, which was the least likely scenario. Why was that the case? If they were that advanced, they might have already arrived here on their own exploration mission, which wasn't the case. Anyways, we developed a series of standard procedures to guide us during the exploration. This was not like those old movies with stupid scientists poking around and unleashing stuff. We were aware of the potential risks we faced. We tried to think of probable scenarios. It was the improbable and unthinkable that got us, right from the start. The mission was carefully planned. Yes, it was. Small group of scientists protected by the crew of the ship, the best of the best Earth military could offer. No more than 12 people in total. Discreet enough to move quickly, gather as much data as possible to send it back home and return without much fuss. Following the same procedures of scientific retrieval missions done during the Martian colonies upheavals. Everything seemed, on paper, well thought out, carefully planned. So of course, like Murphy's Law posits, everything went wrong as soon as we left the solar system and activated the Alcubierre Matayama Drive. What do you mean by went wrong? Faster than light travel has a particular way to affect the mind of those awake during the trip. I'm not sure if it's the space-time distortion that affects the way our brain processes reality. It's not my field, I'm an engineer by trade. But if you are not tucked into one of those hypersleep alcoves and instead you are stuck with skeleton crew duties, then you need to be doped up to your eyeballs to avoid going insane staring at the pitch-black emptiness inside the bubble that allows the ship to travel that fast. And then you must come from the bubble from time to time or the drive will burn out, leaving you stranded who knows where. Those lapses between bubble jumps, lasting up to a month each, allowed us to rotate skeleton crew duties. But they were unnerving because the depth of space is no place for living beings. It put the crew into the wrong mindset for the mission. And that might have cost us. We are well aware of those side effects. No. You are aware of some side effects, not all. Although I can't admit I'm not sure that boneheaded mission of yours will face something similar to what we went through during our travel. 
To this day, I wonder if the strange noises and visions we experienced were caused solely by our destination. Maybe they were a warning of what we would find. We should have listened. We should have turned back. Regardless, we arrived at Aquila 37LC on what the computer indicated would be the equivalent of the 23rd of June in Earth's calendar. We were in good spirits, despite the grueling trip, happy that we had finally arrived. First, we sent drones to see if the atmosphere was within the habitable range, if there was breathable air, gravity pull, radiation levels all by the book. Captain Edwards and his crew took the ship into the upper atmosphere of the planet as we followed the drones below that were searching for the source of the signal. We scouted the planet a few times, flying around, scanning the whole place. The planet was bereft of any sign of civilization. Whoever lived here had disappeared centuries ago, and nature had done its part. Dr. Halliday, the team leader and an archaeologist of renown, suggested that we could instead try to track the source of the signal with the help of the drones, given that there were no signs that someone would receive us. Edwards' crew pinpointed a possible source on a large island south of the planet's apparent equator, near a larger landmass. As we approached the island, turbulence hit the ship, but Edwards and his crew were as capable as they came. We landed in a valley surrounded by hills, including one whose form was clearly not natural and from which the signal seemed to come, probably the only sign of activity by some sort of capable beings. No signs of life? No animals or plants? Sentient life, I should say. Plants. Well, in the region from where the signal came from, there was nothing but tall grass. As for animals, we only found some sort of dragonfly insect, of which, of course, we collected samples. Larger animals? We saw none. There must have been some kind of them. We saw feces around the location where the ship landed, but nothing inside the hills. For whatever reason... It seemed that animals avoided the place. That should have been taken as the first sign of something being off. But truth be told, we were thrilled for finally having found something. As soon as the camp around the ship was settled, we readied the rovers for the journey towards the hill. We prepared a small squad composed of myself, McBride, and Dr. Halliday, with Lieutenant Morris leading the armed detail. Edwards had decided to land at some distance from the hill, on a somewhat elevated plateau opposing it, to have a better view of any possible incoming trouble, hence the rovers. As we approached the hill, it was clear that beneath the vegetation that covered it now lay the ruins of a citadel of some sort, of decent size, probably some sort of outpost. It had been built with a black, greasy kind of stone that seemed to be fused rather than joined through some sort of mortar. It reminded me of old glass that melted with the years. The damage on the stone told me that there were rains and they were of acidic nature. I can't tell you what the place smelled like because as a precaution we decided to keep our helmets on. Even if the air was more breathable than the exhaust of an ancient truck, we couldn't be sure if there were pathogens floating around. When it comes to a collapsed society, all bets are off regarding the cause, but human history has shown us that the most frequent one was due to sickness. What can you tell me of this citadel? I can tell you that the place was ample, with enough skylights to keep at bay the darkness of the farther crevices. There was no sign of technology exposed, but that was to be expected as the elements must have eliminated it. Probably the only source of technology left from this long-gone civilization was the source of the signal. 
What was the purpose of you being on the exploration team? I was there to help setting up the relays to get a better signal quality from the emitter to our ship, which we found in one secluded structure located in the magnetic west side of the Citadel. Morris and his team went first. When the coast was clear, Halliday set up a vacuum tent to protect the interior of the structure once I found a way to open it. She said something about how in the past some Egyptologists had ruined many tombs by prying them open without accounting for the different atmospheres. It took me a day to find a way to open the door, thus we decided to camp there, always keeping radio contact with the ship. We were lucky our suits had thermic insulation, for the temperatures dropped hard during the night. You see, the planet seemed to follow an eccentric orbit and its axis seemed to be off place, which could have influenced the shift in temperature. The place was unnerving at night. It had this kind of vibe that you only sense at a graveyard. That vibe kept Morris and his men on edge. The next day, when we were somewhat rested and ready, we entered the structure. It wasn't that big, only an ample room full of large cabinets that were still working with some sort of batteries. What were those cabinets? Some sort of computer? In fact, they were the source of the signal, which was then transmitted towards a long-range antenna that was deep into the citadel. We sent one of the drones to explore that part, as no one thought it would be a good idea to go there without more data. Besides, we had the source at hand. Did you try to connect with the alien computer? Hell no! I wouldn't know where to start! Here on Earth, at some point, there were so many computer languages that it took a total collapse of our information systems to unify them. And we are talking of the same species. It would take me years just to understand what kind of mathematical basis these beings use for their software, and even more to be able to connect ours with theirs. My aim was just to catch the signal, amplify it, and allow the ship's computer decoding algorithms that McBride and his team back home had developed to decipher the meaning of the signal as soon as we could get closer to obtain a clear reproduction and rethink our plans in case there was a need. This was something that McBride and myself had discussed before, during the mission planning stage, but didn't dare to speak aloud. You see, your bosses were so interested in getting the mission off the ground that any concern we might have had was put aside. What were those concerns? Most people assumed that any alien signal we might get would be either old radio transmissions of what the aliens watched or listened to for entertainment, like us with that Olympics transmission, or the welcoming signal of a neighbor looking for other species to connect with, like we did with those satellites in the past. But they never stopped to consider a third option, a warning. You might think that I was being pessimistic even back then, but as an engineer, you learn to plan for the best and the worst case scenarios. McBride shared those concerns mostly due to his previous experience as a journalist. The fact that we hadn't found more proof of living beings on the planet beyond the tall grass and those strange dragonflies had raised our concerns once more. As soon as I set up the relay, the ship confirmed reception and the algorithm stored in our computers started to work on deciphering the message. We started with the assumption of a mathematical base while McBride tried to find any clue, or a Rosetta Stone as he called it, that would help him to reconfigure the algorithm and increase the speed of work. As luck, good or bad, would have it, Halliday was the one who found it. What did she find? An alien mummy, I chuckle. Despite all that had happened, that makes me smile. At the time, it had been funny. We'd even joked about wondering if the meat would be edible. 
McBride even mentioned that really old movie about an Egyptian mummy coming back to haunt its finders. That part, in hindsight, wasn't funny. A what? The agent asks, visibly befuddled. A mummy. The only proof of sentient alien life humanity has ever found. How many did you find? Just that one. Halliday had her theories. She had found her in what we assume was their equivalent to our own hypersleep alcoves. But we didn't have the equipment there to study the remains, so Halliday decided to take it back to the ship, along with some metal engravings we found around its resting place for McBride to study. We were careful to pack the mummy into a special case designed for larger specimens, and loaded it onto one of the rovers. Once Morris's men set up a drone guard for the relay, we returned to the ship. The trip back was uneventful, but everyone remained silent. Morris quipped something about feeling observed, but as I said, larger animals stayed the hell out of there and we hadn't found any other sign of sentient life. We were relieved when we arrived at the ship, which was already in the midst of a celebration. After all, we were carrying proof that we weren't alone in the universe, even if it was an ancient mummy. What happened when Dr. Halliday studied the mummy? Was she or McBride able to collect more data? McBride could only conclude from the engravings that they were some kind of ideogram-based language similar in concept to Japanese or Chinese, but the grammar didn't make much sense yet, so he fed his meager results to the computer. Halliday was luckier in a way. After making sure the mummy didn't contain any sort of pathogen that could affect us, she was able to collect some preserved DNA with the help of our physician, Dr. Albed. The alien was a carbon-based life form and had a similar biochemistry to our own. Halliday's initial assessment was that the being had been some kind of monotreme. You know, like a platypus or an echidna. They had a large brain cavity and some sort of vocal cords. These beings weren't that different from us. And that gave her an idea. What was the idea? She mentioned an experiment made in the early 21st century. I think it was somewhere around 2020. Some scientists decided to print a copy of the mummy's vocal tract and make it generate a sound. Her reasoning was that by doing that, maybe the sounds generated by the replica could help McBride to find another clue to decipher the message in a more expedited manner. Did it work? I let out a deep, long breath. I wish Halliday had never come out with that idea. Yes, unfortunately. Better than expected. Why is that? Halliday connected it to a pipe from where she blew air. The whole contraption looked like those ancient trumpets you could see in the British Museum. At first, nothing came of it. I helped her to try different lengths, but nothing happened. Albed suggested that maybe the beings had a different lung capacity, but Halliday couldn't confirm given that the mummy had spent so much time desiccated that whatever resemblance of organs it might have had was long gone. We tried anyway, so with the help of Morris, I connected the trumpet to one of the spare oxygen tanks and a compressor. I admit the jerry-rigged thing wasn't the safest thing I've ever built, but it worked. With the increased force, the contraption let out a sound I have grown to hate. What was that sound? By now... My ears are ringing. It's difficult for me to focus. Boom. The agent had just slapped the metal table. Answer me. Fine, fine. No need to get all aggressive. 
To the surprise of no one, it sounded like a horn or a squawk. Not an uncommon sound for us. And yet, and yet, it had a strange quality to it. Almost as if it was denser, heavier. The whole atmosphere at the lab felt uncomfortable. I could swear that the gravity in the room had increased a whole G. Halliday played the sound a couple more times, varying the amount of air and the height of the contraption to get a wider range of sounds. She had the computer record everything to pass it to McBride. And what was McBride's conclusion from those recordings? He determined that they were coming from the same frequency, which was not possible in theory, but that was the truth. He fed them into a rendering model to get a better idea of what that was. It took him two days to get it done, given that most of the computational power of the lab was dedicated solely to the algorithm. As the days passed, the ambience in the ship shifted from the elation due a historical discovery to somberness. Some of Morris's men compared it to the same feeling they had when Pluto's station suffered that unfortunate accident. See, some of them had been stationed there and barely escaped. Edwards, in turn, compared it to the feeling of insignificance he felt the first time he flew near Jupiter's great red spot, like that of being observed by something larger than you. I... I was just feeling queasy and guilty for no reason. You are veering off topic. What about the frequency? The frequency... Yes, the frequency was unlike anything we had studied before. When McBride rendered it through the holographic projector, it resembled more the genetic code of a living being than the classical wave shape. When played through the speakers of the ship, it sounded like one of those old bronze trumpets. I recall that Lieutenant Morris whispered something about the walls of Jericho, and that's when it all went to hell. What do you mean? I want to bang my head against the metal table. The migraine is killing me now. My ears are ringing. Equipment started to fail. Our food reserves decreased without us consuming them. Some of the crew mumbled in their sleep, words in languages that none of us could identify. The drone guards keeping an eye on the relay failed for no discernible reason. Morris had become even more twitchy and McBride more taciturn. Even Halliday acted outside character. She secluded herself in the lab, sobbing. I knew something was wrong. I said as much to Captain Edwards and McBride, but no one believed me. Not until it started. So, of course, Morris was the first to die. I drink a sip of water through the straw on top of the metal cylinder that Agent Donovan pushes near my face. The throbbing in my head is increasing in its strength, but I continue. The agent won't let me go if I don't do so. Don't get me wrong, I liked Morris. A Space Force lieutenant, decorated, always professional, but friendly. He had been married to an epidemiologist, so he was well acquainted with procedure and was careful. But the travel did something to his mind. He acted weird, 
very perceptive to the smallest changes in the environment, the moods of others, even if something was out of place in the ship, like a dish. He and McBride were having these heated debates on everything from consciousness to theology. They were friends, mind you, and I enjoyed pitching in now and then, but lately their arguments were becoming really confrontational. I assume he was the first because, ironically, he was the one that could have offered us an unexpected perspective on what would unfold, and that thing wouldn't allow for its plan to be stopped. What thing? The being we unleashed, or summoned with Halliday's experiment, the real culprit of the mission failure. Did you find a second alien lifeform? You said there were no signs of other sentient lifeforms, and why did it target Morris first? He wasn't a scientist. Lifeforms can come in forms we don't expect, so in a way, yes, we found one. Or better said, it found us. And given its nature, there was no reason for it to leave any sign behind. It has no need of physical presence, a being unlike anything we could have ever expected. And you are right, Morris wasn't a scientist, but he was bright. He was a pastor's son and had even tried to become one before joining Space Force. He had this weird interest in the supernatural and had brought some books about that to keep himself distracted between bubble jumps. McBride was, on the other hand, a very capable xenolinguist who had been a reporter beforehand to pay for his studies, always keeping his cool. But he wasn't a fan of the supernatural. I'm not sure if it was because, like me, he was a lapsed Catholic, or if he had seen so much shit during his reporter days that it had shaken to his core his belief in the supernatural. But Morris wasn't like that. He allowed himself some flights of fancy, thinking outside the box of standard procedures. It was refreshing and useful to catch things outside the norm. He kept making references to biblical passages, to legends about unseen creatures back on Earth that could disappear people in thin air. You know, elemental spirits from ancient cultures. It was as if he was trying to come out with an explanation of what had happened here. One not based in known science, but in warnings hidden in the depth of the human psyche that could explain what had eradicated a whole sentient species without leaving a trace. I guess that's why he died first. One morning, as we prepared for the next trip to the Citadel, he complained over and over about a noise coming from the far side of the valley. He walked outside the ship as we heard the frequency again damned sound of trumpets. Morris smiled. At what, I can only guess, but it would be a good guess. Breaking protocol, he took off his helmet and inhaled the air. It probably had an immediate detrimental effect in his lungs and brain because he just stood there, immobile. The sound of trumpets echoed through the valley. A shadow passed through Morris. He turned around that silly, smile plastered on his face as his body was pulled into the air and disintegrated, leaving nothing but dust. That's when everything started in earnest. What was the reaction of the rest of the team? First shock, disbelief. The ship went on high alert in case we were being attacked by an unseen assailant through unknown means. But nothing happened for the rest of the day. We all pitched in with theories about that shadow, about the sounds Morris had claimed to hear, but we were stuck. 
McBride and I discussed a few sillier, darker ideas, but kept them to ourselves as the team was already in no mental state to discuss them further. In the following days, we lost the rest of the crew. One by one, they all died. Suicide, infection, accidents, an external threat. You want me to go into detail about every single death? That's cold, even for a government cock. They just died. Besides, I didn't witness every single death. I knew of them from other witnesses. Others we suspected what happened, like that yeoman that stood in front of the ion thruster during a regular maintenance ignition. We only found his smoldering feet. A few of Edwards's closest men hanged themselves. Dr. Albert died back at the Citadel when a column suddenly broke and squashed him into the floor. He went there to attend a medical emergency when a corporal cut himself with a jagged piece of the black stone. That corporal later died of what I assume was septicemia. Others went into the dark recesses of the Citadel and never came back. The only thing in common is that someone heard the sound of a trumpet at some point before their death. After that, we decided to declare the Citadel a no-go zone and focus on the few specimens we still had in the ship. The Citadel was, for all intents, a cursed place. That's when Dr. Halliday cracked. She had been feeling a lot of remorse for what had been happening, as it all seemed to have started after her experiment on the alien mummy. I went to look for her when the fire alarms activated. I ran to the lab as it was from there that the smoke was coming. Halliday had set the mummy on fire. I dragged her out of the place as the doors closed and the extinguishers set on to placate the fire. As I got her out of the lab, she muttered something about how she had unleashed the trumpets that announced the end of the world, and how higher dimensions yielded incorporeal intelligences. Her eyes seemed unfocused. I tried to ask her why she had done it, as it had risked unleashing noxious fumes into the ship, and that was the last thing we needed. I got a punch in the face as a response. What happened after that? Halliday ran into the bay where the hypersleep alcoves were. I chased after her, but by the time I arrived, she had put herself into hypersleep. Maybe that was for the best. Maybe after she woke up, you could have talked things over with her. You don't get it. She messed up with the alcove settings. By the time I reached her, the alcove had left her in a vegetative state. I went to look for the rest of the crew, but could only find Captain Edwards and McBride. We were the only three remaining members of the whole team. I took them to the alcoves to show them what had happened to Halliday, but when we arrived... Something else happened to Halliday. The alcoves must have malfunctioned somehow after the tampering, because now her body was desiccated like that of a mummy. She even had the same expression that the alien mummy had. Did you bring up the darker theories you mentioned before? Yes. McBride and I sat down with Edwards at the mess hall. It was night. We had sealed the ship after venting the lab. Between the confusion at what was going on and the dropping temperature outside, it was the safest thing to do. We couldn't figure out what was happening until the algorithm finished being computed. A ping broke the sepulchral silence that surrounded us. What was the result? According to McBride, the algorithm had finally deciphered the message that had led us to that planet. 
It was a warning sent to any other civilization to be wary of the frequencies. Frequencies? Yes. As I said, lifeforms come in many forms. It is foolish of us to expect them to all look like humanoids. McBride, always the former journalist turned scientist, compared those notes with the pile of books Morris had left behind in his locker. I helped him to compare notes, including what Halliday had said before her demise. Morris had made notations in his Bible, in certain passages. Which ones? My memory is a bit fuzzy in that regard, I say. I'm not lying. The migraine, it doesn't feel natural. It feels rather as if something is trying to stop me from remembering. What? I'm not sure, as there is another thing inside my head pushing me to keep telling my tale. But I think they were the ones that mentioned the story of how Joshua took down the walls of Jericho with some kind of sound. He also wrote something about the Ark of the Covenant and, of course, Revelations. I mean, why not? At that point, I was neither surprised nor amused. I just wanted everything to make sense and be done. What was your conclusion? McBride compared that with the results of the algorithm and the warning, so we developed a theory. Mind you, it was a far-fetched theory. Go on. I'm tired of talking. The migraine is becoming harsher, but I know the agent won't leave me alone if I don't share the theory. It seems that the aliens inhabiting this planet were more advanced than we expected for they conducted successful experiments contacting higher dimensions, the ones folded into reality. To what purpose, I can only guess. But they were trying to develop a form of faster-than-light propulsion, or a new source of energy. Maybe they were trying to contact their gods. What we know is that they contacted something they called frequencies. Some sort of energy beings a race of sentient frequencies that made incursions into our universe from time to time when the conditions were right. Some of them took strange forms made of light with multiple eyes. Others were sounds, and one in particular seemed to be malevolent. The warning was about that one. This one in particular, which manifested as the sound that we assumed was that damned trumpet, was vicious. It destroyed all all the cities on the planet, shocking them to the core, or so the warning said. It made this whole species destroy itself, leaving behind only the mummified remains of the being that sent the warning into space. I didn't understand why that was the sole reminder of the civilization, but I'm starting to get an idea now. And why did McBride want to compare notes with Morse's scribbles? As I mentioned to you, if you were paying attention, McBride, like me, was a lapsed Catholic. All those descriptions sounded eerily similar to those passages marked by Morris, to what we had learned at Catechism. If you want to be more scientific about this box full of craziness, those frequencies might be related to many of the sights across our own stories of supernatural beings, except that our ancestors were wise enough to tread with care when dealing with them. This malevolent frequency stayed dormant for centuries until Halliday's experiment summoned it once more. We said as much to Edwards. So your theory is that the aliens contacted some sort of 
interdimensional being that destroyed them, and those very beings are the same that are mentioned in religious texts such as the Bible? What was Edward's reaction when you told him that? Not the one I expected, to be honest. I was expecting a reaction more like yours right now. But he instead remained quiet for a couple of minutes, and then only said that we knocked on the doors of hell and we should get away before the devil answers again. I guess he was still rattled due to the deaths of his crew members. After that, Edwards worked as a madman. Sorry, poor choice of words, to get the ship ready for liftoff. Despite there being only three of us remaining, he assured us that the ship had been designed to deal with a diminished crew if the situation required it. In no time, we were ready to depart the planet. The only remaining thing to do was to pack what was left of our equipment lying outside the ship. McBride offered to do that while I helped Edwards finish the adjustments. Thinking of McBride produces a forlorn feeling inside me. I liked him. Nice person, probably the kindest of the whole crew. McBride was the second to last to die. To his merit, he didn't freak out or become a raving lunatic. He didn't even sob. Maybe that's what unsettled me and Captain Edwards. McBride went out with a smile. As we got ready to close the loading bay and initiate the procedure to leave that forsaken place, the air echoed with that cursed trumpet sound once more. McBride only smiled as he walked outside the ship, just like Morris had done. Edwards tried to restrain him, but to no avail. McBride ignored our pleas as he walked away, with a big smile on his face, walked into the open space of the valley, towards an empty space. The frequency resonated once more, and the shadow moved around, but this time, it seemed to be more solid, at least more real, for lack of a better word. I could only describe as a black gash, a rift in reality appearing in the middle of the air. McBride ran towards it and, taking advantage of the lower gravity, jumped into it, arms wide open, as some sort of black limbs, tentacles perhaps, received him. What was on the other side, I can't even start imagining. Probably something out of those really old horror tales from early 20th century the kind of thing you need to be insane to picture in your head. The fact that I can't do it should tell you that I retain some semblance of sanity. What happened next? Is that when you... The agent points to my ears. I get the meaning behind the sign. Yes. To avoid following McBride into the rift, I did something very stupid and really painful. I won't go into detail how I did it, but I punctured my eardrum so I could stop hearing the sound of the trumpets. I ran after Edwards and did the same to him while he struggled to get free and go after his friend. Once he stopped hearing the frequency, he seemed to come to his senses, for he punched me in the jaw with force and walked into the ship, closing the hatch. I couldn't see what happened to the rift, if it closed or not. I did feel the rumbling of explosions. It seemed that Edwards, in his anger, had launched ordnance towards it. The ship shook as it started to lift off this damned planet. I walked towards the cockpit and took my seat before the ship reached the altitude needed for the escape velocity thrust. I wrote a note on the console, apologizing to Edwards for what I did to our eardrums. He just waved his hand. 
The tug of gravity pushed us into our seats as we left this cosmic graveyard behind. Something else happened during the return trip, didn't it? I know why you are asking me that. Yes, something else happened. Remember what I said about faster than light messes up with your mind? Well, what it does to a human body is not something I can describe without my stomach turning. After Captain Edwards set up the coordinates, he forced me to go into the hypersleep chamber. The plan was to take turns at the helm until we reached Pluto's orbit, at the very least. I knew the basics of piloting the ship and Edwards gave me a very succinct crash course. I should have known then what would happen, but I was too tired, too shocked to put the clues together. I woke up from hypersleep to find myself alone in the empty ship, orbiting Pluto, which wasn't the original plan as I said. Edwards had done something to my alcove, for I had slept through the whole journey. I looked everywhere for him, but he was gone. I went to the cockpit and looked through the security recordings to see what had become of Edwards. Had another rift opened, probably that would have been kinder than what truly happened. Or maybe the bubble the Alcubierre Matayama drive created was the rift, and we have been unknowingly contacting the frequencies. That would explain why FTL messes up our minds. The memory of what happened to Edwards revolted my stomach, but it was his eyes that remained engraved on my mind in my countless restless nights since I was admitted into this facility. What happened to Captain Edwards? We couldn't find his body, and the recordings you mention are missing from the recovered black box, the agent asks me. Because I deleted them, I reply, my hands shaking inside the jacket. What I saw in them will haunt me till my death. As the ship was closing on the solar system, Edwards programmed the ship to return to normal space, and then he went to the airlock. He ejected himself from the ship as it was coming out from the bubble without a helmet. He seemed to be in a trance. His body, it didn't freeze. The bubble is actually a vacuum, and and yet there is something there. For his body evaporated as if he had been made of ice. The bubble was collapsing as the ship decelerated and the energy wall hit his body slowly. When his legs were gone, he woke from the trance and tried to scream, which is impossible in a vacuum. He didn't die from the shock. Whatever had haunted our trip, whatever had compelled him to eject himself, was keeping him alive through unknown means while he felt how the bubble energy wall annihilated his molecules one inch at a time, twisting his innards outwards until only his eyes remained with a pleading look on them. After seeing that, I deleted the video and decided to blow up the ship, along with all the evidence from the mission. I wasn't going to risk taking whatever we found on that forsaken planet to Earth. And yet we found you unconscious inside the only escape capsule, floating surrounded by the remains of the ship. I'm not sure why I didn't kill myself. 
Maybe when I pierced my eardrums, I protected myself from the sentient frequency. That was my hope. Now, I'm not so sure I escaped it. So not a virus, but a frequency is what killed most of the mission and left you a mess? That sounds far-fetched. It's like saying that the devil made me do it. I expected better coming from a person of science like you, the agent scolds me. But at this point, I'm beyond caring about things like that. I'm finally putting it all together. And I would laugh at the irony, but I'm too tired for that. It's not when you are humble enough to recognize that the scope of our knowledge about the universe, I reply, about how life presents itself, about other potential dimensions, is extremely limited. We are nothing but children playing on a beach shore. We haven't truly immersed ourselves into the deep oceans of cosmic reality. Standard procedure won't help the Icarus mission and certainly won't help you or anyone that is listening to this recording. As soon as I say that, the migraine disappears. I feel as if a heavy weight has been lifted from my shoulders. My head feels emptier, as if something had been occupying space there but now is gone. My thoughts become clearer and faster. Now I totally understand. What do you mean? The agent asks, visibly shaken. Back then, I wondered why I was the only one to survive. But right now, looking at your recorder, I suspect why Morris, the military man, was far more prepared than me. Halliday, way smarter, but they probably weren't suited to host it. McBride, with his expertise, might have been able to find out its plan and stop it. Maybe that's why it forced him into the rift. Edwards was already too traumatized after losing all his team. He was just useful to get us near Earth. Me? I was just the last one available to share it. To host it. Like the memes. That frequency. That thing that needs a transmission medium. Like my words. It acts like an infection, or a possession. Now I get it. It has played us both. What do you mean? The agent asks once more, standing up with such haste that the chair turns over and hits the floor with a loud metallic thud. Your devotion to the standard procedure has condemned you. Probably more people. I hope you have made peace with your inner demons. Otherwise, you and anyone listening to this recording might start to notice weird things happening quite soon. Such as... I smile. That has clearly unnerved the agent, judging by the shaking. At this point, there is not much I can do to stop what will happen next. I'd better let the agent know how it will go down. Strange noises in the middle of the night breaking the silence of your room. Booming sounds in the air or a ringing in your ear. Shadows moving out of the corner of your eye. Voices whispering to you at random times, distracting you when you have to cross a street. 
Sudden anxiety attacks, raising your palpitations, making you afraid of being alone and being with others. The ominous sound of a trumpet echoing inside your head, no matter what you try to unhear it. Whispers trying to convince you to do something foolish. Maybe even, someday, a rift in reality opening behind you, inviting you to enter it. Just like right now as the trumpet echoes through the air as you keep listening to these words. Thank you so much for listening to episode 1103 of The Wicked Library. Today's author was Ricardo Victoria with his story, The Sound of Madness, told by Andre Luke Martinez. To find out more about today's author and voice actor, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. I've been Addison Peacock. You can find me online at addisonpeacock.com or on Twitter at Addison underscore Peacock. That's A-D-D-I-S-O-N and Peacock Like the Bird. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitesi of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytik. The Wicked Library is created by Night Story Studios. All rights reserved. And happy Halloween.